wider in its influence and deeper in its effectiveness and development. That's what this passage demonstrates. So we dealt with several principles. One was about extending grace to others, particularly those not in our normal uh, social group. Talked about the need to maintain relational health and how important that is to a church. We talked about the need to multiply ministry in others, uh, giving away ministry for others to uh, participate in. Talked about a firm commitment to the Word of God. Now, all these things were exhibited in Antioch under the leadership of Barnabas and Saul. And today we're going to look at one last principle that I think will certainly inspire all of us and be welcomed by all, and that is how we handle money. Uh, we're going to deal with our passage, and uh, I'm going to end then with an application for CCC. So I'm telling you up front so that anyone who wants to get up and, and walk out, thank you, uh, you, can, you can do that now because of the emotional trauma and mental anguish that will happen from a sermon on money. Of course, I'm being sarcastic, but I remember when I was kind of in a similar state when I was selfish with money, and being in that state kind of decreases our ability to receive instruction on the topic. When Janet and I were first married, I thought that I had very good reasons not to be generous. I mean, I thought that giving generously was reserved for those who had more money than us. And I had basically more time in the month than I had money. And of course, that had nothing to do with how we were handling it, but everything to do with what I was making, right? Wrong. I assumed that my happiness was paramount, just like most immature Christians who think the same. And so I thought that giving generously would create more stress. And what I found out is that as I grew in Christ, that I was just as responsible when I had, you know, less money versus when I had more. And my stress seemed to be in direct correlation to my attitude and obedience on money. In other words, the more I gave, the more, the more generous that we became, the less stress there was. It was weird how that, how that happened. And I think a principle out of this is that generosity is the best anecdote for selfishness and materialism. Generosity. So, if you're prone to maybe tune out sermons about this topic, first of all, I want to say, I know how you feel, but I trust that you will not ignore what is being said today. I mean, really, what have we got to lose? If you listen and you apply the principles that are going to be talked about today, I think that you're going to thank God for that. If after I'm done, you think it's completely useless, then hit me up after the service. I'll buy you lunch and we can talk some more about it, all right? So let's take a look at Acts, and I'm serious about that. Acts 11. Let's uh, open up our Bibles, Acts 11, and uh, let's all stand as we look at our passage. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but... There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Antioch, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So a group of prophets come to Antioch, and there seems to be a difference in the Scripture between the office of being a prophet and the gift of prophecy. The, the gift of prophecy seems to focus more on, on preaching. A person who's a, who's a prophet focuses more on foretelling the future. They, it can include preaching, but it also has to do with foretelling the future. And Paul seemed to elevate this gift of prophecy above all others. He went in 1 Corinthians 14, 1. He said to pursue love, but also the gift of prophecy. So prophets also preach, but as I said, they, uh, God sometimes gave them the ability to predict the future. Uh, we could say it this way, that, that prophets represent God before men, and the priests and their sacrifices, they represented men before God. Isaiah 8.20, when it speaks of prophets, says that those who claim they speak for God and just give their own words, they have no light. Light being synonymous with, with direction or, or truth. Jeremiah 23.16 adds that, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Kind of a funny verse to have in the Bible, isn't it? Don't listen to the prophets. It says, They fill you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So, in other words, there are good prophets, and then there are fake ones, right? In August 2013, a public zoo in the third largest province in China temporarily shut down due to an unusual problem. Visitors discovered that the zoo's lion was actually a dog posing as a lion, According to a report in a Beijing newspaper, the fraud came to light when a, a mother and her young son visited the zoo, and the animal labeled a African lion started barking. <laughs> uh, zookeepers admitted that the so-called lion was actually a Tibetan mastiff, a large dog with a, a furry brown coat. Now, they also admitted that they had other animals mislabeled. Apparently, it was a white fox posing as a, uh, a leopard. And another dog was being passed off as a wolf. And the staff even swapped two snakes in the reptile house with two giant sea cucumbers. Now here's the good news for Christians. We are not at the mercy of any Yehu who makes false claims. Right? I mean, Christians can recognize false prophets 
by testing their claims against Scripture or by seeing if the prophecy they give actually takes place. Or maybe they can wait until they bark. So either of those might work. Luke, very well aware of this test for prophets, not only provides the prophecy that was given, but he notes that it was fulfilled. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there was a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, Agabus is also spoken about in Acts 21. And notice that Agabus foretold by the Spirit. So we can assume that they knew about this group of prophets or knew specifically about Agabus that he had already demonstrated his reliability or perhaps there was even a a supernatural demonstration. We don't know because we're not told. But somewhere he had earned the trust. I mean, the church acted rather immediately on this prophecy, which would have been rather risky for somebody that they knew nothing about. The prophecy was that there would not just be any famine, but that there would be a great famine all over the world. Now, by the way, it was not uncommon to call the Roman Empire the whole world, the civilized world or the inhabited earth. So we're probably talking about most of the Roman Empire here. Verse 29 tells us that these believers concentrated their efforts in Judea, which was the the province where Jerusalem was located. Uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, writes that many people died in the first century because of a lack of available crops. And those who had food had a hard time getting it to those who needed it. Other writings during this time demonstrate that grain prices were unusually high while the supply was low. And the Roman emperor during this time was Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 AD. And he followed Caligula, who, and then preceded Nero. Now there were reports actually that Claudius was mobbed by people because they were so upset about the famine. Most scholars place the Judean famine around 46 AD, which would be right about in the middle of the history of the book of Acts. So about 30 years has spans from Acts 1, the end of Acts, and Acts 11 is about halfway through, about 15 years through. So the disciples determined, everyone according to their ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So notice that the people responded to this relief effort, and yet they didn't see the full extent of the famine, but they were just operating on this prophetic voice of Agabus. And so the, the church apparently was, was quick to listen and quick to act on the instruction from its teachers. One of our staff members offered in this week's staff meeting, this gem, that if we err, let us err on the side of action. I like that. I mean, there's a lot of talk on Sundays, isn't it? I mean, you know, you, you go to a class, you, you hear a sermon, you know, we talk God up good, right? But obedience, action is what we're after, transformation. And this church acted And God used that to expand the influence of the gospel. We could say it this way. Here's our principle. 
that consistent generosity helps to expand the influence of the kingdom of God. Consistent generosity. Notice our text says, everyone participated. Apparently, somehow, some way, all within the church were prompted to give, and they gave. Now, it's obvious they did not give the same amount. They all gave according to their ability. Not equal amounts, but equal sacrifice. And though this church we know had had theological differences, racial differences, economic differences, they gave in a unified effort to meet the needs of brothers and sisters in Judea. Now, they couldn't meet everyone's needs in the world, but that didn't stop them from helping somewhere. And the church seems to enjoy this this unique togetherness when it's united in generosity. I saw this in our life group last week. Uh, as several of us gathered to build a new bathroom for one of our own who were in need for a new setup because of special needs. I mean, the fellowship is somehow sweeter as you sweat together, right? As you work together, as you, as you sacrifice together. Uh, we've seen God do this in our efforts at Fairbanks Life 360 as we've helped with the renovations there and we, we serve the least of these. We've We've seen this at, at Weaver Elementary School as we have provided students there with winter clothes and, and backpacks. There's a, there's a special bond that takes place, for instance, as, as you go together to, to Guatemala or we give towards a project like that and we sacrificially give of our time and money. We've witnessed God using this body in profound ways if we've ministered in other sections, for instance, meeting the needs in Kenya, literally saving the lives of children who are being killed, their organs being trafficked on the black market and creating a safe house there, or feeding and ministering to Syrian refugees in Jordan, or ministering to mothers and babies here in Springfield. I mean, we, we can't meet all the needs, but has God has prompted us We have acted. We've given where we can. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Philip Brooks was asked what he would do to revive a dead church, and he replied, I would take up a missionary offering. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's power in a church that has extravagant generosity. Notice Saul and Barnabas gave the proceeds to the elders. In other words, there was a a trusted group who were responsible to distribute the gifts to meet the needs. I certainly thank God for our our finance team and our elders here at CCC who who oversee the, the finances in all aspects and are accountable to one another and, of course, to you. I think there's an encouraging note here about this passage that the, it says that the Spirit of God prompted Agabus and kind of starts this thing off with this prophecy. But it was also, I think, the Spirit of God that prompted the church to give sacrificially and regularly. And I think there's something that we can, we can learn about the Spirit here. That God fills people with His Spirit so they can give. 
God fills the church with his spirit when everyone gives. And God fills believers with his spirit when they are sacrificial and generous in their giving. I mean, here at CCC, we've made a a huge commitment to other ministries and missionaries outside of this church. And I think CCC has a reputation of being generous to other ministries when the needs are presented. And for that, you're to be commended. And I can't even begin to tell you as a pastor how gratifying it is to hear stories of of people giving of their time and their their gifts and ministering to other ministries or, or other people. So thank you. And may God continue to bless you for your sacrificial giving. There's one needed I feel compelled to bring to your attention, but first I want to lay out a few stats and information for context. CCC has two main categories or funds that are used in our operations. We have a a general fund that covers all the operating expenses. So we we pay our mortgage out of that, uh, utilities, staff salaries, and also our our missionaries. We then have a a benevolence fund that's used for physical needs within the church. But then we also have uh, special projects that come up where funds are put into that and that's called, you know, uh, our restricted funds that cover things such as like our Advent conspiracy that we do every year, uh, the vision project for improving the, the facility, the Weaver project, and, and other things. Now, because of the changes that we've had in our staffing from last year to now, our expenditures in our general fund is actually $5,000 less this year than it was last year. Okay, that's kind of nice. And we had hoped that this would lead to a significant surplus increase in our general fund. But that has not transpired. And while our giving total is similar to last year, uh, as far as the, the total giving for everything, right? Many funds are being given to special projects while the general fund has suffered. And just so you know, any gifts that are given that are not designated automatically go to the general fund. So we want to see our general fund increase so that we can pay down our mortgage, so we can position ourselves with future facility expansion and and future staff as it's needed. Our finance team, by the way, is going to be meeting with the congregation soon, hopefully before the summer's up, Uh, to cover some of these specific details, so I'm not going to get into all that. But while we appreciate the special giving to projects, uh, we need everybody participating in the regular giving that goes to the general fund for reasons that I've stated. Here's another interesting fact. Just so you know, by the way, I I don't know what people give, all right? I don't want to know what people give. But I do ask our treasurer for some stats that I think are, are germane and important. Uh, This week, I asked our treasurer to compare the number of giving units in June of last year to June of this year. And by the way, our attendance is up in 2018, but our giving units went down by 26. 
That means while our attendance has gone up, we have 26 less families or individuals giving to CCC. Now, if you were me, wouldn't you think that would be important to mention to people? Um, I do. So I say this not, not to shame you, but just to say, let's see what God can do when everybody trusts him with regular, sacrificial generosity. You know, most churches talk about tithing. I don't like the term because I think it's usually front-loaded with all kinds of concepts that conjure up manipulation. And, and I think a lot of people even have just irrational you know, fears about that. And some of it founded, some of it not so much. But there is no such thing, I'll say this, there's no such thing as a person, I think, who walks in obedience with Christ and they're not giving regularly and generously to see the kingdom of God expand. And, and when you do this, by the way, on a, on a percentage basis, you learn to loosen your grip on the pull of materialism. Now, I know the fears, and I'm all too familiar with the, the roadblocks because of my own journey, as I mentioned earlier. But it, just being honest, I now, I love giving. It, it is true. And, and I love giving and seeing what, what God will do. And I love giving to seeing how God changes my own heart and perspective not to be so materialistic and, and to trust him. You probably have heard these stats before. You know, tithing means um, giving 10%, and the average Christian in the, in the U.S. gives less than 2%. You know what I found? Statistics don't motivate hardly anybody. Change lives do. Making a difference motivates. And, and CCC has made significant stri um, strides in the city, in Guatemala, and elsewhere. And if you've been attending CCC for some time and have yet to participate in regular generosity, I want to invite you to be a part of seeing the kingdom of God expanded. Generosity in the kingdom is, is not a dull obligation. It truly is a privilege. Look at 2 Corinthians 8.4. Paul says the Macedonians were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging is a word that means coming alongside earnestly, pleading for the opportunity to give. Taking part is the same word that's used for fellowship. So you had people pleading for the special grace to have fellowship that comes through generosity. I mean, when we're generous... It just seems we enjoy life more. Contentment doesn't come from hoarding. Contentment comes from trusting God and practicing consistent generosity. And, you know, your, your generosity also produces joy in others. In Philemon 7, Paul talked about generosity refreshing the hearts of saints. It encourages others. When the temple is being built by King David, his leaders were giving generously to the temple project. And it says in 1 Chronicles 29.9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. So how we handle material possessions 
We could say it this way. It makes us rich toward God. I mean, when we leverage material possessions for his pleasure, we're going to enjoy his rewards. I'm asking you if you've not yet participated to not wait. Not only will you benefit, others will benefit as well. Other ministries will benefit. Your heart's going to be filled. Luke 12, 20 through 21 says this. But God said to him, foolish man, tonight your life will be taken from you. So who will get those things you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for those who store up things for themselves and are not rich toward God. I mean, if, if you want the most out of life, live it to be rich toward God in giving our time, our talent, and our treasure. Let's start today.